Hear the word of God from Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Short text today, so you guys, this is good. You guys, I, didn't, I didn't make the reader read like a really long text today. Hope you're doing well this morning. I pray that you're ready to receive the word today, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will be preaching and teaching this word through me this morning. We're in our series in the book of Luke, and last week we saw the call to Peter and the other disciples to become fishers of men. This morning we're looking at the call of another disciple, not another fisherman, but instead a tax collector, Levi the tax collector. Now for us to really understand the elements of this call, we need to know something about hate. You guys are like, hate? What are you talking about, Lawrence? We need to know what it means to hate someone. Because that's what's happening here in this, in this passage. Is for us to truly understand the depth and meaning of this passage, we need to actually understand what it means to hate people. Now, I'll be real with you. I actually struggled thinking about this. I can thank God I'm blessed to live in a time where I had a hard time thinking of who I really hated. I mean, I conceptually hated people who abused other people. I, I hated people who hurt other people. I hated people who hurt children. But I didn't really know anyone who did that. Does that make sense? So I was thinking about more, like, who, who else do I hate? And then I started thinking, well, I, I hate evil regimes and dictatorships that are enslaving the people. But I also don't live under that, and I don't know them as well. So I had a hard time thinking about an illustration. I had a hard time thinking about a, 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 just people I, someone I, I can really relate to when I say hating someone. Then I thought of a story an old professor of mine I had for one class that RTS told me. In 1964, my professor was walking by himself down a street in the Netherlands. He was returning to his house where he had rented rooms from a landlady during his graduate studies in Holland. And just as he approached the house, this elderly woman was come from the other direction carrying groceries. So he smiled at her, greeted her, and said, you know, can I help you carry the groceries? She was so excited. She stopped, her face lit up. Uh, she spoke to my professor. And it was like she didn't want to stop. It was like she just didn't want to like, let go of this conversation. He spoke for five minutes, even 10 minutes, even 15 minutes. And they were just talking. She was smiling. And they were just having a great conversation. He said goodbye to her finally. She went on her way. Then he went into the house that he was staying in. As he walked in the door, he was met by the landlady, who he grew to have a good relationship with. And out of nowhere, this kind landlady starts screaming at him, starts yelling at him, and saying, how could you possibly speak with that terrible woman who he met on the street? Obviously, he didn't understand what was going on. He was like, what's your deal? She explained that during the war, which had only ended 19 years prior, this woman had been a collaborator. She was a traitor. She gave comfort and help to the occupying Nazis in the town. The landlady told the story of how the Germans were taking young men from the village and shipping them back to Germany, putting them to work in slave labor camps to help the military production effort. 
the next door lady to the landlord, the landlady said she could, um, uh, with her next door lady, land, uh, sorry, with her neighbor, not this bad lady, but the landlady, would conspire to dig a safe place underneath her living room, underneath the floorboards, where they put a bed, a fan, water, food, um, and other materials in case if the Germans came, they could hide their sons. She's told the story of how one day the, the Gestapo came into her house carrying a machine gun and asked the woman, do you have any sons? She said no. So they ran to the bedroom, felt the beds, looked in the closet for any evidence of young men. Then to fulfill their examination, they came back to the living room where the leader pointed his gun at the floor and started shooting. And while they were shooting the floor, they were watching the woman to see what her reaction would be. And when they were finished and satisfied that there were no young men there, the Germans left. This woman just about had a heart attack, trying to conceal and not show any emotion. After they left, she rushed over to the trap door that had been concealed, went down, and discovered that her son hasn't been shot. Can you imagine? Can you imagine hiding your own son in your house under floorboards and have somebody with a gun coming in and you not showing any emotion? That's the kind of scene that you only see and hear about in movies, and it's difficult for me to even imagine that happening. And when you hear that story, you can understand this hatred this woman had for this other woman, this landlady had for the, the, the lady that was my professor greeted. Now, I'll tell you that story for a reason. The kind of hatred the landlady had for the trader, the collaborator, was how the Jewish people felt about tax collectors. In Israel, the term sinner and actually the term uh, publican or used, can, can be used for tax collector were virtually synonymous because people felt that the worst sin was the sin of the collaboration with the Romans who so severely oppressed the Jewish people. Now, you see, tax collectors typically, most of history, were kind of not liked. And I'm sorry if you work for the IRS, we love you. We're not speaking of you, I'm just saying, uh, we're not saying that. But in most cultures through history, tax collectors weren't well received. But in Jesus' time, it was even worse. There was so much tax because the area was possessed an area by a superpower, Rome. So there were taxes due to Rome. Rome owned this land. And the, the kingdom of this land owed money, tribute to Rome. So they had to collect all those taxes. But then the kingdom in power, Herod, would also do his taxes. So he wants his money as well. But then some tax collectors collected a duty on imports and exports. They would set up toll booths on roads, harbor docks, bridges, and you can tax almost anybody for anything that moved along the road. You can be walking down the road that you've been using for 10 years, and all of a sudden a tax collector sets up a booth on that road and starts charging people to use that road. Maybe you had a cart. They might say, oh, you have too many wheels on your cart. There's too many animals pulling that cart. You need to pay more taxes. Tax collectors could tell people to open their packs and goods and just tax whatever they wanted. And there was very little control over this. Only the tax collectors and the government knew what the tax rate was, and it was always changing. So basically, they could charge whatever they wanted anyway. This tax collector was the one who saw the interactions. Who, if you had a complaint, you would go to the tax collectors, and they all like, looked out for each other, so you had no one to complain to. And on top of all this, on top of all the ways that they could skim you, take all your money that you worked hard for, come up with random ways to tax you, tax, traders were, or tax collectors were considered to be traitors. The Roman government always had a difficult time collecting taxes from the Jewish people because many of the Jewish people at that time had no qualms whatsoever about killing a Gentile who wanted to take their money away to support the Roman government. Eventually, though, the Roman government found a way to collect their taxes and keep the tax collectors from getting killed. They hired Jewish people to collect taxes for them. 
And the zealots would, might not think twice about killing Gentiles, but they wouldn't kill fellow Jewish people to collect taxes. So the Roman government had a curious way of paying their tax collectors. They told the tax collectors how much money they sent into the government, and that anything the tax collector could get above and beyond that amount, they could be kept for themselves. So tax collectors became greedy and extorted, extorted money from their own people. They would often use thugs or strong-arms people into paying for far beyond a reasonable amount. Because of this, they were despised, hated, and scorned. Do you get the level of hate I'm trying to convey here? I hope you see it. Because it leads to the first point that I want us to see this morning in this text. Is that the call of Jesus is astounding. The call of Jesus is astounding. He went to what people considered the worst and the most hated. He went to someone who the people considered a cheat. He went to someone who people considered a traitor and called them. Jesus walked up to Levi in the very booth that he was most hated for and said very simply, follow me. Jesus went to him. People, we cannot miss this. We must not miss this. Jesus goes to the one who was hated the most by the people around him. He went to the guy who was cheating his people and was a traitor to his nation. He caused that guy to be his disciple. His call is astounding. Guys, in other words, this message is saying to you is that if there are no ends, no depths, no place that Jesus won't reach, and there's nothing that you have done, there's nothing that you have done that can keep you away from the love of Jesus. If he can call Levi, he can call you. Now, some of you may be here thinking, not me, not really. You have no idea the things I've done and the thoughts I've had. Honestly, when I'm by myself, I have a hard time loving myself, accepting myself. How could Jesus? Let this story of Levi and the testimonies of all the believers in this sanctuary today shout out to you that yes, Jesus can love and will love and accept even you. He accepted and called Levi. He accepted and called even me. He will do the same for you. And may the voices of this sanctuary and the people's lives show that to you. That his call is astounding. Guys, his call was too as extreme as it was to the Nazis who were shooting the floorboards. His call is too as extreme as it was to the traitors of the nation. Guys, my people, can you hear this? His call is even to you. No matter how far you think you've gone, how bad you think you are. Look at what Levi did after he called. It says, Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Levi was so moved that he left everything. Everything as in he actually literally left the tax booth where all the money was, where all the funds were. All the, he just literally got up and left. Left it all on the tax collector's tables. Luke very intentionally said that. Luke was intentional when he said that language, left everything. We see later on that he had a house, a nice one that could fit all those people for a banquet. He left that too. But you know what else he left behind? He left behind being called the traitor and the outcast. He left behind being called the greedy one and the cheat. Jesus calls you just the way you are. It's astounding. His call is amazing. But he calls you also to leave behind the stuff. You know what the stuff is, right? Different for different people. Maybe titles or the names you called yourself or others have called you that don't belong to you anymore. 
Maybe your ambition or your desire for the whatever dream it may be. Maybe your wealth. Maybe junk you have accumulated, whatever it is, his call is so astounding that he just doesn't just call you in the depths of where you are just to where you are, but he calls you also to leave that stuff behind. It gives you new dreams that are better than anything you ever had before. Amen. Can I tell you this, people? I want you to hear this. So many of us have grown up hearing and being given different names and titles. Some of you have been growing up hearing wonderful things about yourself, but some of you guys also have grown up hearing bad things about yourself. You're the, the dumb one. You're the unwanted one. Some of you guys have given these titles to yourself. You can't be loved. Do you really know what I've done or seen? How much hurt I've been through? When the astounding call of Jesus happens, then you can leave that stuff behind because his call is all-consuming and all-changing. And even when those things that you believe are your titles, he not only takes those things that have been told to you and he redeems it, he completely changes it and gives you something totally new. His call is astounding. And he called Levi, he's called me, he's called so many in this room. If you're in this place, can they all shout out and tell you, he can call even you. The call of Jesus is astounding because he flips religion as they knew it on its head. The call of Jesus is the opposite of religion as they know. The story of the call of Levi happens towards the beginning of a series of encounters with the Pharisees. Right before this story, Jesus calls his disciples and he's gaining in popularity. So the Pharisee and the scribes come by to check him out. And as they're checking him out, he does this incredible thing. He, he forgives and heals a paralyzed man. And the Pharisees are all up in a tizzy. They're like, Jesus, you can't say his sins are forgiven. What? what, what? You can't do that. And, but then he says, what's easier? To say his sins are forgiven or to actually heal him and see him walk again? Jesus always has the right answers. He's, he, I love his answers. Then the call of Levi, the, the, the Pharisees question Jesus about fasting after the call of Levi, and then talks about Sabbath. This section is showing a direct confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, the leaders and representatives of the religion at the time. And the Pharisees thought of repentance as something of merit, act, whereby one can make oneself worthy of forgiveness. They thought of tax collectors as terrible heathens for whom there was no hope. And both ideas are thinking could not have been more different from Jesus. Their view of righteousness in their own way, Pharisees hungered and thirsted after righteousness, but it was not righteousness of God, but rather an artificial righteousness of their own self-serving definition. The very name Pharisee means righteous, but in a, in a sense of separatist. You know, we're righteous, we're, we're separate from everybody else, we're righteous. Righteousness was an outward observance of the law and tradition so complicated that only Pharisees who had dedicated their lives, who had the money to do this, to study the law and all its technicalities, could attain their level of righteousness. The common people were utterly incapable of understanding righteousness, much less practicing it. So the Pharisees gloried in their superior attainments, this outward and legalistic righteousness. And they honestly looked down upon those who could not compete in practicing what they did. Ceremonial purity was, was a big part of this whole game. And we see the Pharisees and the Gospels obsessed with elaborate rules for ritual washing, etc. But one of the most important rules for the Pharisees 
was he shouldn't be in contact with sinners. You can't be in contact with sinners. You can't hang out with them, especially can't eat with them. Eating with them implies acceptance, and they're supposed to be avoided at all costs. And then just look at Jesus and his disciples eating, not only with sinners, but with the worst kind of sinner imaginable. Are you kidding me? Shameful. Embarrassing. How could you? And this ignorant, unclean multitude who doesn't know the law might think he's the Messiah? And understanding this attitude of the Pharisees helped us then to put their attack on Jesus into perspective. Here was a man who was implicitly claimed to be the Holy One, the Messiah, but he's violating every standard of holiness that the Pharisees held dear. How could he possibly be eating not only with sinners, but with a bunch of sinners, with a whole lot of them, and still claim to be the person who loves God and upholds righteousness? Pharisees could contain themselves. So the response to this reaction of, of seeing Jesus eating with sinners shows where they were at in their attitude. And the response is interesting. I love it. They address it not to Jesus himself, but to his disciples. They question his disciples. They say, why do you eat with tax gatherers and sinners? It's designed to appeal to very deep-seated assumptions about what is right and wrong. And they can assume, rightly assume that disciples share this with them. They're thinking, of course the disciples are going to agree with me. We hate the tax collectors. They're the worst. They're the Nazis. So obviously they're going to hate them too. The purpose is twofold. With respect to the disciples themselves, it was trying to drive a wedge between them and Jesus. I mean, do you really want to be seen with the guy who eats with tax collectors? Is this how your master plans to overthrow the Roman Empire by eating with traitors? By buddying up with them, making friends with them who betray us? But also with the crowd. The Pharisees' purpose is to discredit Jesus and destroy any credibility he has as a candidate for Messiah. How can you follow this guy? He's not the Messiah. He eats with tax collectors. He's a sinner. He eats with traitors. And they knew their audience well. The Pharisees, their strategy was a good one. They, were, they expected it to be effective. What they had not reckoned with was the humble love, radical genius, and profound theology of their opponent, who overheard their statements and answered for himself in ways that exposed the shallowness of the Pharisees' hearts and the inadequacies of their assumptions. I love this part of the text. The Pharisees think they made this great case. They have their gotcha point. Jesus is eating with a known, no question, sinner and traitor. He can't be the Messiah. He can't be the teacher. He must be the enemy. And Jesus simply says, is that the healthy who need a doctor? With the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Boom. He dropped the mic. What do you say to that? The Pharisees were left standing, huh? But the people who overheard had the opportunity to realize that they were being presented with a concept of repentance that's so different, a concept of forgiveness that's radically, profoundly different from anything they've ever heard before. It is one that made repentance and forgiveness possible for sinners like them. And for the first time, they said, oh, maybe there is hope, even for me. The Pharisees said, if we repent, by which they meant make ourselves worthy, God will send the Messiah. If all Israel will but repent, then the Messiah will come. That's kind of their thinking. That's our teaching. And then Jesus shows up, while they're still waiting for that to happen, with his own agenda. The Jews said, we must make ourselves worthy and in response to that, God will send his Messiah and give us the earthly kingdom. 
Jesus said, you simply accept me and I'll grant you forgiveness and count it as worthiness of the heavenly kingdom. The Jews said, Messiah comes to save the worthy and judge the unworthy. Jesus said, those who think they are worthy delude themselves, forfeit salvation and come into judgment because self-righteousness is the worst form of unrighteousness. I came to save the unworthy whose primary need is forgiveness and who know it. And this forgiveness is a free gift granted by grace alone through faith alone. He completely flips the idea of religion on its head. Completely. The paralytic on the mat could not perform any of the pharisaical acts of righteousness to merit forgiveness. But Jesus just up and gave it to him out of the blue when he wasn't even asking for it. He did not say to Levi, reform yourself first, clean up your act, and then you can follow me. He said, come. And Levi just got up and left everything and came, and he was accepted. Now, Levi did become a different man. He started by leaving his sinful employment to follow Christ, but he did this because Christ had already accepted him, not in order to be accepted. And this is the bottom line, the moment between God's way of salvation by grace and man's way of righteousness by works. The call of Jesus is astounding. And the call of Jesus turns religion upside down. Do you hear the message today? If you're here this morning and you've been trying to clean yourself up or make yourself better before coming to God, know that that isn't what makes you righteous. It's Christ alone. His gift is free and it's for you today. If you want to accept Jesus today, like Levi, with all your flaws and all your faults, he will accept you and call you to purpose. You can know him. And if that's you today, I ask that during our time of singing, you find me or one of the prayer teams or one of the pastors, and we would love to talk to you and pray with you. We'd love for today to be the day of salvation for you. We want you to know that you don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to earn merit, but instead we get his merit because of his free gift of love for us. For those of you who are already followers of Jesus, note that this sermon gives a tip of how to do last week's sermon. You guys remember last week, we talked about being fishers of men, right? Become fishers of men. We're, we're on a fishing boat on a pleasure cruise, right? Remember that one? Well, to be fishers of men, this sermon gives a little hint of, of how to do it. Last week, um, we called to be fishers of men. This week, we called a little bit of how to do that. To be fishers of men, we need to go where the fish are. Does that make sense? Does that, does that make, you guys hear me very well? So what that doesn't mean, let me just call it as it is, what that doesn't mean is that we create holy huddles, you know, and be around only people who look and think like us because that makes us feel comfortable. It does mean that we sometimes place ourselves in places and situations that make us feel uncomfortable. What it does mean is we need to go where the fish are, right? Sometimes that's over choppy water. I'm going to go with this illustration for a while now. Sometimes it's over stormy seas, you know? Sometimes your boat's not the best, but we still gotta go. It's worth it. You go where the fish are. We don't wanna be a holy huddle set apart and not wanting to be mixed up in the world. We are to be a light in the dark places to go eat with sinners because we are all sinners in need of grace and we are all called to the sick. It doesn't mean be stupid and unwise, hear me very well, but it means to love and care for the lost and become fishers of men. My people, Waypoint Church 
is not called to be the seemingly, is not called to the seemingly healthy and righteous. We're not called to the ones who pat ourselves in the back and think how good and holy we are. We're called to the sick. Now, I know we've been using our, this idea of a, of a fishing vessel versus a pleasure cruise or a pleasure ship, but another illustration of what the church is, and there's a lot, there's a million illustrations for what the church is, is that we're called to be a hospital for the sick. Right? Can I just say this? I've heard so often said to me, I don't like Christianity. I don't like Christians because they're all hypocrites. Right? I've heard that said multiple times. Have you guys ever heard that phrase before? All the Christians are full of hypocrites. Well, yeah, we are. But in reality, we're probably the least hypocritical because we all acknowledge that we're sinners. And we all acknowledge that we're not righteous. Right? So that, does that mean that we're less hypocritical because we all admit that we're sinners? And the ones who are calling us hypocrites, or they're the hypocrites because they're saying we're judging, but they're judging. You guys hear what I'm saying. But in all honesty, here's the point, is that we are all sinners in this place. And that's the big unifying factor of who we are, is that we're made in the image of God, that we have the taste of the divine in us. We long for the eternal and to be known and to be loved and to have purpose, but we're also sinners. We've all fallen short. And if you think you're better than anybody else, let me tell you something. It's a phrase that I've heard before but your, your, your poop don't smell any better. Do you hear what I'm saying? We're all sinners. We're all human. And we all need Jesus. And what Jesus did in this call to Levi is he flipped religion on its head. He said it's not about earning your way. It's about accepting the fact that Jesus loves you. And so this morning... As a church body, may we be people so moved by the astounding call. May we be people who are so motivated, so captured by this astounding call that we can be like Levi, leave everything, go after him, and become fishers of men. And may we turn this place into a fishing vessel and a hospital. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We thank you that you show us that your love reaches even to the most hated. God, we thank you that your love shows us that your, your love reaches to the lowest of places. We thank you that your love reaches to the darkest of corners. We thank you that there is no end, there is no depth that it doesn't go to. And God, that we can know that even us, even me, even wherever we're at, we can know and experience the forgiveness and the love of Jesus. May that be right now. God, we thank you for that kind of love. And may that move us as a body to be fishers of men, to become a fishing vessel and a hospital for sinners and sick people. God, we, we want to be the people who live in such a way that they can see the love of Christ every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.